Well, today we are beginning a new series. We've been kind of in between series for the last couple of weeks. You know, we were uh, talking about Give Me Jesus, the teachings of Jesus for a couple of months, and then we had a, a couple of weeks where we uh, had our, our uh, fun in the Sunday, and then we had a guest speaker last Sunday, and we did some other things as well. And so we've been kind of in between, and today we start a, a new series, and I'm excited about it, uh, and it's called Twisted. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Jeremiah, the 29th chapter. Jeremiah 29. Twisted, and we're talking about the most misused verses in the Bible. Now then, I anticipate this series being, you know, a couple of weeks long, maybe three weeks long, but as I began to post about this uh, on Friday, I started to get some feedback from people that were interested in this topic, and so what I'm going to do is we're just going to reserve a few weeks, and you know, if there's a lot of interest in this and we want to go a little bit more, we'll do that. We'll just kind of leave it up to, to you guys and your leading and just kind of let the Lord lead us as we go through here and we talk about these, these misused verses in the Bible. But I, I'm really excited about it. You know, a lot of people, they turn to the Bible as a source of comfort, as a source of, uh, of strength, uh, encouragement, a source of, of life and, and to be uplifted. They turn the pages of Scripture and in it they, they, they find hope and for very good reason. Because when we open the Bible... We read the story of God, do we not? We read the story of God. We read the story of Israel, God's chosen people that He used. We read the story of Jesus. We read the story of the church, and we read the story of us. And so to open the Scriptures is a very important thing because it's how we learn who we are and who we were created to be and who God wants us to be you know in all of us we have favorite verses do we not who has a favorite verse of scripture that you lean on and I've got a lot of them okay and I got a lot of them and especially when I'm having a, a really tough day and uh, my anxiety's up you know I, I go to first Peter 5 7 that says cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you you know that's one that kind of helps me get through a, a, a stressful time and all of us have those but I don't know if you're like me, in that sometimes you notice that the, the verses that we hold on to, at times, some of those verses seem to sort of fall flat during a, a time of crisis or a, a, a time of, of hard times. And there's a reason for that. There is a, a, a very specific reason for that. You know, one of the, uh, one of the great things about the Bible is the, the versification. You know, in every one of us, we've got a Bible, it's got all these verses, and it's got, it's got uh, you know, chapter numbers, and then you might have headings off to the side, and, and, and that is really great for looking up Scripture, right? Somebody tells you a verse, they quote it something, they'll say Psalm 100, and you just go to the 100th Psalm, and it's, it's very handy for finding what somebody wants to talk about and and most of the time that's very useful but but some of the times it isn't you know when scripture was originally written it didn't have these things it didn't have the numbers it didn't have the the chapters it didn't have sort of the the subheadings 
As a matter of fact, if you were to find an early copy of the New Testament, it'd be written in all Greek, it'd be written in all caps, it would have no spaces and no punctuation marks. It'd be like a huge run-on sentence. would drive English teachers absolutely bonkers. Okay, And then somebody got the brilliant idea and said, hey, you know what, let's make this a little easier on the people. Let's put in some chapters, let's divide this thing up. Let's put in some, some verses to help us find some of these things. And, and most of the time, most of the time, that is tremendously helpful. Because I say, go to Jeremiah 29 and you open up your Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah to the 29th chapter. If it were the other way, I'd say open the scroll of Jeremiah 29 and good luck figuring out where I'm going to start. You know, so we see that there is a vantage to having the, the chapters and to, to having the versification because they do give us, you know, it gives us some very, you know, quotable uh, nuggets of truth that we hold on to. But sometimes, if we're not careful and if we're not paying attention, then those verses can give us some, some bad theology. Why? Because often those verses are pulled out of their, their context. They're pulled out of their original meaning and their original intent. And a lot of times, those verses are applied to situations in our life that might not have even existed when the author originally penned them. And so for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at verses that, that we as a, as a people, and we're probably all guilty of this, I know I am, of taking a verse and ripping it out of its context and anchoring down to it and, and not meaning to, but sort of changing the meaning of what that verse means. You know, and we can do that if we're not careful and so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about some of these verses we're also going to take them we're going to put them back in their context to see what they originally meant and we're going to talk about how to properly apply scripture and that's good for all of us yes or no yes that's absolutely good for all of us now then let me tell you the danger of one verse theology when I was a uh, teenager early 20s I had a verse that I that I anchored down to John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I would anchor down for that one. If I love God, I do everything right, I'll ask God, he'll just give me whatever I need. Oh, whatever I want. God, this is what I want. I'd lay out my list. Lay it out there. But then you know what happened? I didn't get those things. I thought, well, well, do I not love God? Am I not a, a, abiding with God? You know, I, I do love him, but then it was later on I realized, you know, that's, that's pulling a verse out of its context. Okay? That verse is in the middle of a section that is talking about prayer. And what Jesus is saying is, look, is that my words, my words must stay with you if you want your prayers to be heard. In this context, Jesus, is, he's talking about prayer, but not only that, he spoke these words maybe just a few hours before Judas and the guards showed up and arrested Jesus. I doubt very seriously on the night before he's crucified, Jesus is writing a verse saying, hey, just love me and you can have whatever you want. He's saying, look, remain in me. Remain with me. 
That's, that's the better way. Even when times get hard, remain with me because it is, it is the best way. And so that's kind of the danger of that one-verse theology. And if you'll notice, you know, my preferred method of preaching is expository preaching. You take a text, you know, a, a large chunk or a chapter, and it's where you just move through it. You just go verse by verse, and you cover the whole thing. And, and really, my preferred method is to take a whole book instead of just chunks at a time, but take a whole book. That way we see the overarching theme, and we see the message that is running throughout that in, entire verse or in that entire book. You know, and you get to you do some more things as you preach like that. You know, I'm going to give you a couple of $5 feature words. You know, you do things like exegesis and, and hermeneutics, and all those are just real fancy ways of saying you involve yourself in interpreting the Scripture, interpreting the text. You know, you're digging in and you're using all these tools and resources and trying to determine what the original author meant by this and why did he say it and when did he say it and who did he say it to. And it's a, it's a really, really exciting thing. And so for the next few weeks, that's kind of what we want to talk about because the last thing we want to do is we don't want to misapply Scripture in our lives, right? Am I right there? Can I get an amen? We don't want to misapply Scripture. We want to use it the right way. So I'm going to give you the point right off the bat, right now. And the point today is this. Context is key. Say that with me. Context is key. It is the key to understanding, to understanding what God meant. And I'm going to give us uh, a couple of things to talk about this. Well, here's one thing to remember right off the bat. The Bible was not written to us, but it is written for us. Does that make sense? The Bible was not written to us. I mean, we don't open up the Bible to the second letter of Cornerstone. You know, we don't have that. But we go to the second letter to the Corinthians and we realize there's some good stuff in there that he is applying to the church in general and maybe there's some truth in there that we can take and we can put it into play into our lives. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. And I'm going to give you two quick things that can kind of help us as we go to study in the scriptures. The first is just to remember your ABCs. When you open up a passage and you're trying to discern what it means and trying to understand and, and you know just mine all the truth out of it, remember the ABCs. The first is this, the author. Who wrote those words? Who wrote the passage? Who wrote the book? The second is the background. When and, and where was this written? Okay, where did the author live? Was he writing uh, to a people that were nearby him? Was he sending off a letter like Paul often did throughout the New Testament? And then C, remember the context. How does the passage, or if you're looking at one verse specifically, how does it fit with what comes before and after? You know, it's like our, you know, we talk about context clues in school. You know, we learn those things very early on. A lot of times we take the Bible, and it's like we, we forget those things. But if we'll keep context in mind, it'll help us to apply Scripture the right way and not pull it out and, and sort of change its meaning unintentionally. The second thing is what I call the W's. And this is kind of similar. But who? Who was the author? Who was the audience? Who, was the, who were the recipients of what was written? When was it written? 
why was it written? You know, Scripture was written for a very specific reason. We need to figure out why it was written. And then finally, what were they trying to say? What was the message? What was the point? What was the, the theology behind what is behind what is written? You know, and it's these things that we're that will if we'll put them into practice as we study scripture. You know, if you think about the ABCs, you open up a, a, a scripture, okay, you open up a New Testament verse and there's one that you really like and you start thinking, okay, who wrote it and the background and why it was written, who did he write it to? Did he write it to, to Philippi or did he write it to the to the church at Corinth? And that's going to be very different things. And why does he say one thing here? Why does he tell talk about Timothy doing one thing and then say that Titus did a completely different thing? Okay? And if we'll apply those things and sort of think through those questions, it'll help us in our in our understanding of Scripture. All right, so let's talk about some of these things. Let's go to uh, our, our twisted victim number one, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a, a beautiful verse of Scripture. And you might not be able to read it there, but you've got it in your, uh, in your Scriptures there in front of you. But it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Man, that's an exciting verse, isn't it? I love that verse. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse of Scripture. And we see this verse, you know, you'll see it in different places. You'll see it on this, like that, that beautiful image that we have behind us. It's like a, it looks like a, a, a sunrise or a sunset in the desert. Man, that just sort of makes it more spiritual when you see it that way. Or you might see it uh, on a bumper sticker. You might see it uh, embroidered somewhere that you might see hanging in in someone's home. And this is a verse that, that a lot of people, they, they lean on in this verse and they, they anchor to it because when you read that verse by itself, it seems to say that God has a, a very personalized, a very individualized plan for each of us. And in the end, life is going to be okay and that the, the general direction that we're all heading in is one of prosperity. Now, who does not want that in their life? Anybody? That sounds like a great deal, does it not? Absolutely, it does. Because I want to be blessed by God. Okay? I want God to, to prosper me, and I want Him to have the, the, these great ideas for my life. But what about when things don't go according to our perceived plan? What about when, when, when the bottom falls out and things don't happen the way that we thought they were going to, to happen? Then, then what? You see, and that, that's the problem, is that when our, our faith is based on, on such an idea and then something really bad happens to us, we end up asking, you know, how could God do this? How could, how could God do this? He said He had a plan for my life. How could God break His promises to me? Do you see what that does? That's the danger of doing this. We end up doubting God. We can find ourselves at odds with Him. We find ourselves angry with God because He promised us a plan and that plan, it didn't work out. You see, and that's the danger of lifting one verse 
out of its context. We don't want to be those kinds of people. We want to be the people that read Scripture in context. So let's just read. Let's just start at the beginning of Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 28, there's, uh, you know, he's talking about false prophets and they're giving false things and all this other stuff. And then Jeremiah 29, we see the background, we see the context in which this verse actually fits and it'll make a whole lot more sense to us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had what? Taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We see who he's writing it to right there. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hands of Elisiah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets, your, your diviners who are among you deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now then, pay attention to verse 10 right here. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Now then, plug in verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and I will come and, and you will pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You see, in context, in context, this, this passage, and, and more specifically, this verse makes a whole lot more sense. And when we read it in context, we realize, hey, this verse is not addressed to an individual. It's addressed to an entire group of people. It's addressed to the Israelites who have gone off into, into Babylonian captivity. 
And God is, is promising that He has not given up on His people. Okay? They are going into captivity. Okay? It is the consequences for them turning their back on God. For years, God has said, you are to have no other gods before me. But what have we seen them do all throughout Scripture? Idols. Idols. False God. Graven images over and over and over and over again. The kings, you read about those kings who did more and more evil in the sight of the Lord. Finally, God said, you've got, we, you've got to pay the consequences for this. And so he allows them to be carried off into punishment. He raises up Babylon. And they come in and Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city. He drives them off into captivity. This is, this is a judgment because they turned their back on God. But what God is saying there in, in verse 11 is, is trust me. Trust me. Yes, you're going off to captivity, but you know what? It's going to be okay. You live there in the land, and you live off the land. You marry and you build your houses. You have children. You raise your children. You get them sons, or you get them husbands and wives, and they have sons and daughters, and you continue to grow, and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring you back. Trust in me, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a, a hope and a future. But for a time, you're going to go off and you're going you're to be in captivity and you're going to think about this. But I'm not just going to leave you there. I'm going to bring you back home. You see, and even though things looked hopeless, God is telling them that they still have a future. You see, and that's what we can draw on when we come to a verse like this. God does love us, and He does want the best for our future. And we can take hope that our lives fit into the broader context that says even though things are hopeless, even though things are bad, even though things are falling apart, God is still there. Trust me. Because I have this plan. And this plan is to save all of mankind through His Son, Jesus. Does God have an individualized plan for us? I don't know. I know He has a plan for every single one of us. It's love God, love others, and serve the world. That's exactly what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Love God with everything you've got. Love others the same way. And then you go out and you serve people. That, that is God's plan for our life. But when we pull it out of Scripture, it, it, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so if we anchor down to a verse like the one that's up there, and while it offers this, this great comfort and great hope, when life falls apart or the plan seems to be just upended, we start doubting God. We become angry at God when instead we need to go back and really see what God said. Look at the whole of Scripture, the whole context, and see what he's saying. And we realize, man, that's not exactly what he was talking about. But I do see that there is some, some hope there. Now, now I, everybody, everybody knows what an Internet meme is, or at least those of you that are on Facebook and those kinds of things. It's these kind of funny pictures that you see, and there's these sayings. And I found one that goes along with this, hey, Willy Wonka. 
So Jeremiah 29 is all about you. You know, remind me again about the time of your Babylonian exile. You know, and, and while that's kind of funny and while it's kind of smart alecky, you know what that does? It reminds us that we have to read Scripture in context. Okay? Because that verse, when we look at it that way, we realize, well, you know what? That really is not about me. It's not about an individualized plan. It's about the whole people of God. Okay, and so Willy Wonka reminds us, he reminds us that, that context is the key. And so when we apply some of those things to the book of Jeremiah, we see it's written by Jeremiah. Okay, some of it may have been pieced together by one of his associates by the name of Baruch. The audience, it's written to uh, you know, the nation of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, to the Israelites. And the context is, hey, judgment is coming. Okay, judgment is coming, but hang on because hope is, is, is coming too. We have to remember, context, when it comes to reading the Bible, say it with me, context is key. Context is key. All right, well, let's move on to uh, twisted victim. Twisted victim number two. Man, this is a good one. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I love that verse. I absolutely, I absolutely love that verse. This is another great and a, and a powerful verse of Scripture and is often quoted during difficult times. And here's the thing, that's when it should be quoted. During the, the difficult times of life, that's when we, we, we quote this verse. Um, I, I read an article this week and it, it said this. It said, this short verse is often quoted by sports teams it's on bumper stickers and taglines as a, a rally cry to accomplish great things like running a marathon or climbing a mountain, winning the championship, finishing the remodel on the kitchen, etc. But the thing is, when we don't accomplish these things, then we can again feel like Jesus has, has, has let us down. And so, you know, we misapply that verse and our, our, our good friend Inigo Montoya says you, you keep using that Bible verse I, I don't think it means what you think it means you know that's a good day you get a Willy Wonka reference and and a Princess Bride reference in the in the same sermon that's a good day right there isn't it marriage is what brings us together today sorry sorry should I should I move on as you wish. In context, in context, that verse has so much more power, so much more depth, so much more meaning, so much more real life to it. Paul is writing to the church in, in Philippi. He's writing to thank them for their continued support of his, of his ministry during his Roman imprisonment. His theme is, is joy. Look at, look at Philippians 4. Uh, let's start in verse 4. He's already talked about things like, you know, make my joy complete, rejoice in the Lord always. Right here he says in, Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your 
reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let thanks, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now then look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now then look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Do you see the power that's in that verse? When it's read in its original context? Think about everything that, that Paul has faced. He has faced death threats multiple times. He has faced multiple attempts on his life. They attempted to stone him to death. Remember that time he had to be let out of a window at night because they wanted to kill him? He was beaten with rods three different times. And that was absolute. It was meant not to kill, but to be absolute torture to a person. And now he finds himself imprisonment. He's under house arrest at this point, but eventually he's going to be in full-blown prison in chains. Yet he is saying that he has learned to be content whatever the situation because he, he trusts in his God and Jesus gives him the strength to continue on. Continue how, you know, we might ask. By proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ to any and everyone that he came in contact with. Whether it be from a, a, a jailer to the Roman high officials, Jesus strengthened him to endure whatever was set before him. And so we see that, you know, this verse pulled out of context, it, it loses a lot of its power because it's not about winning the game. Okay, it's not about closing the deal or, or, or getting the job. It's not about lifting as much weight as I possibly can in the name of Jesus. It is about enduring and finding contentment in less than ideal circumstances. And it's in those circumstances when life falls apart, Jesus strengthens me. I can do all things. I can endure. 
I can endure all things. I can do all things. I can be content when I don't have anything. I can be joyful when life is just throwing me all the evil it can. When life is going great, I can still rejoice. I can do whatever the situation calls for because Jesus, my Savior, strengthens me. That's not to say that we can't draw encouragement from from this verse on an individual basis. We just need to understand and apply it in in its proper context. So looking at Philippians, we see who wrote it. It was written by Paul. The audience, the church at Philippi, the background, he wrote this from prison. In prison, he's talking about joy. That's someone who has found the ability to be content. I think the only way you can be content in that kind of circumstance is through Jesus Christ. Are you with me? That's the only way it is. God doesn't promise to do everything, you know, hit the game, winning shot, win the game, finish the project. But he does grant us the strength to continue on as we face trials and and troubles of life. You see, it's so important that, that we handle the Word of God correctly. It talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. So it has the power to to give life that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It corrects, it trains, it rebukes, it teaches, it lifts us up, it humbles us because it's the living, active word of God. And we have to make sure that if we're going to be Bible people, that we have to be Bible people. That we don't just pull things out, or at least if we do pull it out, we understand what's going on all around us. Because Philippians 13 is a great verse. But, you know, and you say it to somebody who knows nothing about Scripture, and it would be really encouraging. But can you imagine telling this verse to somebody who has never heard the story of Paul and explaining the background and everything he went through, can you imagine the encouragement that would come from that? We have to make sure we don't miss out on those those opportunities. So one more time, say it with me. Context is key when when it comes to God's Word. We have to read Scripture in its context. Listen, and, and we're all guilty. We've all done this. I've done it a million times. Okay, I'm sure I've done it while I've preached. I'm sure I'll do it again. But we have to make sure that we're not doing it intentionally, that we're trying as best we can to understand what God meant when he wrote the ancient words that he gave us all those years ago. God's word is powerful. It is life-giving. It is life-changing. And we must be people of the word. It's in that word that we learn about our lives. We learn our story. We learn the story of God. We learn the story of Jesus Christ. 
all of us, as the song we sing, all of us, we can belong to Jesus. And we give our lives to him. And God's word tells us how to do that. Confessing Jesus as Lord and being buried with him in baptism. But it also gives us an opportunity to make changes in our life. And it talks about repenting, about changing our lives, about starting over. If we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins. That's all in the word of God. And if you need to do either one of those things, why not do them today? Why not name Jesus as Lord and be baptized into his name today? Or if you need to make a change in your life, whatever it may be, whatever struggle you're having, Maybe it's just not a change you need to make. Maybe you just need prayers of the church. Why not come and get that today? It is readily available. But don't go away hurting. Don't go away with a misunderstanding. Don't go away with a burden that God never meant for you to carry in the first place. If it's unforgiveness or whatever, come and lay it at the foot of the cross as we sing about the ancient words of God. Holy Word.